The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the Office of Personnel Management need to speed up security clearance reform, according to Senate Intelligence Committee Vice Chair Mark Warner. Warner's letter to OPM and ODNI says the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative is taking too long to cut the clearance backlog. Federal News Network reports the backlog gone from 725,000 in April 2018 to 248,000 last month. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission will designate the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Information Security Agency as the lead response agency in the civilian federal government. Commission co-chair Mike Gallagher tells FCW agencies aren't coordinating enough with CISA. The new National Defense Authorization Act gives the commission until April to release its final report. Jovita Carranza is the new administrator of the Small Business Administration. The Senate confirmed her Tuesday. Federal News Network reports Carranza was SBA's deputy administrator during the George W. Bush administration. She's leaving her position as U.S. Treasurer. The Environmental Protection Agency doesn't follow the Office of Personnel Management's recommendations for valuing time off awards. The Inspector General at EPA recommends figuring out how to value those awards, but the EPA doesn't agree. Ricardo Pitts-Wiley is partner at Federal Practice Group. Ricardo, welcome back. It's good to see you. What's Thank your you. takeaway from what the Inspector General wrote here? What was the, kind of the summary in your view? Well, in my view, I, I think that the Inspector General's report touched upon a problem that a lot of federal government agencies have, which is this quintessential problem of how do you value an employee's contribution and, and reward them for that contribution. Uh, and so the, the problems that this IG report uh, touched upon, I think, are not unique to EPA at all. There's a formula for this, though. As I mentioned in the outset, the IG basically says, follow how OPM is doing this. What this boils down to is there's a combination of things that EPA can give to an employee. They can give them cash reward for doing well or time off or some combination of both. What did the inspector general find as far as how EPA was going about doing that, Ricardo? Well, uh, what they found is that EPA was not accounting for the value of time off awards that were given uh, in addition to monetary awards uh, for, uh, for good performance. Mm -hmm. uh, and so essentially the, the, the problem is that you can have inequities uh, within the workforce because people may be getting cash awards but also getting time off awards that have a significant amount of, of cash value. So, you know, for example, if you have a, a GS 13 or, or 14 or 15 employee receiving a 40 off, uh, 40 hours uh, time off award, you know, that can be two or three thousand uh, dollars in terms of value. That on top of a cash award, it can create inequities within the workforce. And one of the examples the IG cited, and I don't remember that the numbers were exactly what I'm about to say, but for example, you and I received the same rating. Um, you get a cash award, I get the same cash award, but also time off. That's the inequity that the IG sounded like they were trying to address there. That's absolutely correct. And so what EPA was failing to do is they were failing to 
quantify or, or value that time off award. And, and what that allowed some of these managers to do is they were able to circumvent higher level review uh, in terms of those awards. And so there's just a, a lack of oversight um, from management uh, about these particular types of incentive awards. The EPA says we don't need to value these awards. The IG says yes, you do need to value these awards. What is, what's kind of standard operating procedure for valuing these awards other places? Or, or is the, there's a formula that I mentioned at OPM, but are agencies really implementing this, I guess? Well, there's actually a problem that OPM has. So OPM has uh, provided regulations that allow for agencies to provide both time off awards as well as uh, monetary awards as part of an incentive award package. Um, however, OPM did not go that extra step and, and provide regulations requiring agencies to value this time off award. There is guidance that's provided uh, by OPM on their website, uh, but this guidance is, is only instructive, it's not required. And so that, that's the difference between EPA's management and uh, EPA's OIG with respect to what's being required. If OPM were to uh, promulgate a new regulation that essentially uh, required agencies to, to value the time off awards that are being provided, I think that it would fix the problem pretty quickly. The significance of this to me as I read through this was I didn't have any idea the scope of the award, of the time, the, the volume of time that's allowed. Um, IG report says EPA awarded 355,000 hours in a two, three-year period, that's a lot of hours for an agency the size of EPA. So this is a lot bigger, I think, than maybe a lot of people were aware. Right. Uh, I believe the IG report essentially stated that, you know, the, the estimated value of this time off provided over a three-year period was about $19 million, mm -hmm. which is significant. Um, and, you know, that money is, is money that is, uh, you know, the taxpayer's money. And, and it, we can ask whether or not it's being used appropriately. You work with uh, employees in your practice on an ongoing basis. What does this look like in your view from the employee's perspective? What does somebody do when they perceive that maybe this didn't work as fairly for them as possible? Well, from an employee's standpoint, you know, there's certainly uh, th this idea that perhaps fairness has, has not been uh, has not been satisfied mm -hmm. in this particular circumstance. But you know, this is not only a problem for employees, this is a problem for managers as well. Because managers, you know, in the absence of having an appropriate set of procedures and policy, they're also at risk uh, for receiving complaints from employees. It can also undermine their managerial authority. And it can also, you know, undermine, you know, a good working culture that mm -hmm. uh, most federal government agencies want to have. It's really, it's, it's interesting because this is supposed to be a morale booster and as you lay out those kinds of challenges, it has the potential to turn into a, to, to something that hurts morale. It can be when, very divisive. Yeah, when somebody thinks that they're not getting a fair shake. That's right. What, how does a manager apply that lens, do you think, to make sure that she's being absolutely fair in the way that these awards get given out? So if a manager on his or her own wants to be fair, it, it's fairly simple. They can actually calculate the value of the time off award that's being provided. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can simply do that by multiplying the number of hours by the hourly rate uh, of that particular employee. You know, one of the challenges is how do you actually 
initially determine the value of an employee's contribution. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, that's the toughest part and that's where there needs to be some methodology that's provided by each agency uh, and if not by each agency then at least by OPM. It seems it's hard to turn a, an art into a science. I appreciate your input, Ricardo. Thanks Absolutely. for coming on. Up next, simplifying the process for acquisitions. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how one chart could allow for more innovative acquisitions. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The President's management agenda emphasizes IT modernization and the improving management of major acquisitions. A periodic table of acquisition innovations from ACT-IAC aims to help both of those goals by putting helpful information in an easy-to-use interface. Tim Cook is CEO and owner of ASI Government. Tim, it's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming in. I know nothing at all about chemistry. I barely know that the periodic table is something to do with chemistry. What's the intersection between that thing and an analogy for innovation and acquisition. Great, thanks for that question. Um, and it's actually a way to try to organize mm. all the things that have been going on and are underway across the government, frankly, in acquisition innovation. It's been an avalanche uh, and it's been everywhere. It starts with Congress, it's management, it's, um, it's uh, it, in the civilian world, the military, the IC, everyone is doing this. Mm -hmm. So how do you organize all of that stuff in a way to make it accessible? Uh, the point being, <clears throat> how do you promote the adoption mm -hmm. of the things that have been done over the last four years? It's quite a, good, quite a bit of good work that has happened uh, that people need to be aware of. One of the challenges in all of the innovation efforts that people are undertaking in acquisition has been to just for everybody to be aware of what everybody else is trying, whether it worked or didn't work, and it strikes me that this is a wonderful tool to be able to do that. For me to be able to see that five agencies over, mm. somebody's tried something similar to what I'm thinking about doing, and maybe it didn't work, so I should do something else. Am I on the right track? Yeah, um, and one of the issues that it addresses is the sort of risk uh, avoidance, risk aversion. Uh, people don't like necessarily trying new things. So to know that others have, mm -hmm. and that they have worked, and here is how they did it, uh, is great a great way to reduce that tension uh, around the need to innovate to keep up with the changes in the marketplace and the changes in government uh, requires some innovation, mm -hmm. um, but it's not a normal process. Yeah. So. Well, um, tell me how you're feeding the table, how the information's getting there, and what kind of information people find there, and then we'll talk about the iterative process. Okay. Uh, so the the table is built from uh, so the Institute for Innovation uh, at ACT IAC came to me and asked me if I would lead an effort to support the innovative acquisitions that n were needed to uh, enable IT modernization. Uh, I said yes. We put together a volunteer group a little over a year ago and we started working on several fronts. One was to collect the stories. Mm -hmm. So what are the stories out there? Who's doing what? And how is it working? Um, we've actually leveraged the DHS pill uh, procurement Innovation Lab quite mm -hmm. a bit there and we've got some great industry partners who are contributing uh, to that collection. Um, it has been 
something that the OFPP folks, uh, Office of Federal Procurement Policy, have been mm -hmm. intensely interested in uh, and promoting as a way to foster this adoption that we're all looking for. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what Leslie Field has talked about for years and what Michael Wooten has talked about since he became the administrator at OFPP, propagating all of these stories and calling attention to all these things. What are, you mentioned PILL, that's one of the success stories by all accounts. What else have you seen that really sticks out to you as a terrific example of the kinds of things that other agencies should be looking at, Tim? So let me, let me uh, answer that question by talking about uh, a trip I made to Special Operations Command. Mm. Uh, I have a team of folks down there, and I said to my team, uh, what makes this place special? You know, they are really, uh, they get a lot of awards, they're recognized as being good at what they do. And she said to me, it's a mindset thing. Mm. And the mindset thing is on the wall at SOCOM. It says, we never stop learning, we never stop experimenting, and we never stop iterating. We're looking for those solutions for the warfighter that are the best we can find, wherever we may find them. Mm -hmm. And if that means establishing something like a Softworks to go out and find new companies that have not played in this space before and bringing them in under a simplified kind of acquisition environment, in this case using mostly OTAs, mm -hmm. other transaction authority, um, or something similar like a challenge. Uh, here's my problem statement. It's a challenge. Can you solve that? Uh, it's an easier way to get new blood into the mix. The theme of those two concepts and the reason that I think SOCOM's having the success that they're having is uh, 10, 15 years ago, maybe longer, uh, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Dick Meyer, said one of the problems that we have is getting requirements simplified. Hmm. So this is something people have talked about for years and it sounds like everybody's kind of fed up with it enough yeah. that they're willing to look at these kinds of solutions. Yes, and so there's a lot of virtue in not having the government solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes we write specs. Here's an SOW, here's a specification for a solution. That's solving the problem. Mm -hmm. Rather than having industry bring its creative juices to the problem describe the problem and that's what's going on at places like Softworks and Afworks and nearly a hundred other places that have sprung up to implement the, the expanded authorities uh, and to innovate within the FAR. What are those hundred or so organizations that you've found that are doing this well doing, what was the common thread among the activities that they're undertaking? So the common thread for those guys is that they're serving as intermediaries. Mm -hmm. uh, I sometimes call them brokers, but they are bringing the demands of government to industry because a lot of the industry they're interested in attracting is not looking at the typical government, you know, uh, sources for business. Yeah. Um, they've never done that before. What do you see moving forward? What happens to this information? What happens to this table? Uh, all of that. We've got 30 seconds left, too. Uh, so what we're going to do, we're going to get this prototype to a certain point, uh, working closely with OFPP. Uh, we're going to hand it over to the government when we get to that point. We being the institute at mm -hmm. ACT-IAC, uh, which is a combination of volunteers from government and industry. So we get it to that point, we're building plans now to make that transfer, and then it will become a government-owned resource for government people to use. One quick story on that. Mm -hmm. The USDA has already used the prototype to develop a course on advisory downselects uh, for their people, which they hadn't been using before. So there's immediate benefit uh, even before we deploy it. You told me before we went on the air, it's online at FAI.gov. Tim Cook, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to see you. Great to see you. 
Up next, big changes to multiple award schedules. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's changing and what it means. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Big changes are coming to the General Services Administration's multiple award schedules. Those changes start as soon as this month. J.W. Butler is a consultant at Center Law and Consulting. J.W., welcome. It's great to have you on. You're writing about these changes that are coming. What's kind of the thumbnail of what vendors should be looking forward to dealing with here as these changes happen? So what I wrote this uh, about is the um, phase two of the multiple award schedule consolidation. And the things that are changing in this are the uh, implementation of the the second rule on the telecommunications and uh, video surveillance technologies, the removal of the FAR 51 deviation, and there's also some of the um, legacy uh, SIN numbers that are changing, as well as some of the SIN numbers in the current uh, multiple award schedule consolidation that came out in October of last year. You've got a number of issues here, mm -hmm. and presenting this to people who are in different positions mm -hmm. as a result of these changes that are coming. For current schedule holders, you write about six things here. Mm -hmm. Which of these jumps out at you the most as maybe the hardest, most important to implement, will take the longest time, whatever, for vendors who are already on the schedules? I think that the biggest thing that's going to be changing for current schedule holders are their SIN numbers. Mm -hmm. All of the SIN numbers are changing to the new SIN numbers under the multiple award schedule. And those are actually going to look a lot more like NAICS codes because in most cases they are NAICS codes unless there are multiple SINs that currently uh, apply to a single NAICS code. In that instance, a lot of times there'll be letters at the end of them, like in the mm -hmm. instance of um, NAICS code uh, 541511. There's 541-51S for tech, IT technical service or IT professional services, mm -hmm. and then there's SIN 541-51HEAL for IT medical services, that sort of thing. Why is that important? What difference does the SIN number changes make to the contracting process? Well, the SIN numbers changing, obviously, they're going to look different, so it's going to confuse people when they're not used. They're used to seeing their SIN numbers as they've been for the last however many years they've had their contract, now mm -hmm. they're going to look different. Also, the size standards are changing for them, as well as the SIN descriptions and the scope of the SIN themselves are going to change in a lot of cases. You're also writing about how this will affect vendors, you write, with currently pending offers. What's how is that going to change for people that are in that process? Well, vendors with currently pending offers have probably been waiting a long time for their offers to be completed. Mm -hmm. And the largest way this is going to be affecting them is they're going to start processing those offers that people sent into um, GSAE offer in phase one of the multiple award schedule consolidation. They're going to start processing those. So people are going to see those offers starting to get approved. Mm -hmm. They're going to start, the new schedule is going to show up in GSAE library. So they'll be seeing those offers coming through the um, coming through the e-offer system. You also write, uh, for vendors preparing to submit a new offer to GSA in e-offer, what changes for that, on that, in that area? The offers that are waiting to submit, they need to just be sure that they're looking at the most current schedule solicitation. The, it'll be the multiple award schedules, refresh number one. And they want to make sure they're looking at that and not the old legacy instructions that were applicable to vendors before October of last year. And they're going to want to make sure they go through the new solicitation 
solicitation document as well as all of the large category attachments that are associated. Where's the biggest potential here for me as a vendor to make a mistake as I'm trying to navigate all of this to goof up something that will affect my business? I think the biggest opportunity for that is not reviewing the large category attachments. Mm -hmm. Now you may see this new solicitation document and go, oh this is what I need, this is my new SIN number, this is all I need to look at. But you also need to make sure to re review the large category attachment that you're proposing. So if you're doing an IT service, you need to look at the IT attachment and make sure that you fully review everything that goes along with that to be sure you're, you, you have all of your bases covered, all of the rules, regulations, requirements, everything is filled out. Is there anything in that that is potentially uh, legal, there's exposure to legal issues, or is that just understanding how all the acquisition, how all the regulations and the way that this stuff is written applies to the way that you're submitting your information? I think it's more that. You just have to make okay. sure that you are sending the correct information and it applies to the rules and regulations and to what you're actually submitting. So we have about a minute left. What will you watch as this happens, as GSA goes through all of this stuff? What will you watch to see how it's affecting the vendors that you work with and that are trying to navigate all of these changes? So what we're kind of watching right now is just seeing for each, each of our um, clients and vendors that come out with the mass mod, making sure they accept it, because the mass mod has to be accepted by July or June of 2020. Mm. So that's when this phase ends, and if you have not accepted the mass mod at that point, your contract will be done. So you need to be sure you accept that mass mod, you need to make sure that you're accepting it, not just for one contract, if you're a vendor with multiple contracts, you, mean, you need to accept this mass modification for each contract you have. So if you have five contracts, you'll be accepting five mass modifications. So if you don't accept it for all of them, again, the ones that you don't accept it for will be canceled. J.W. Butler, your post is up at centerlawgroup.com. Thanks mm -hmm. very much for coming on. Yep. Thanks for having me. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. Using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Uh, Jeremy, 
he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with Nest or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, so it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education, to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.